0: chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, you'll find uh, the scripture we're going to be in today on page 1193 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 9, page 1193, and we're going to jump back into our series through the Gospel of Luke, the Chronicles of the Savior. All right, I love those pages turning. Amen. I want us to begin this morning by thinking about uh, I want you to to just think for a moment about if I asked you to write a list of what are some of the most dangerous places in the world? What are some of the the places you might put on that list? You might list somewhere like Somalia, which is a very uh, dangerous place, especially right now. There's a lot of terrible things going on there. You might list Yemen, which is a place that's very dangerous, and uh, you might list that. You might, some of you might say, Friday rush hour on Highway 49 is a very dangerous place. You might say that. But on my list, I would, somewhere on my list, I would put freshman year of college, philosophy 101 class because even as a, a, a young 17 year old completely unchurched individual I went off to college and and every Tuesday and Thursday morning I would get up and leave my dorm room and walk across the campus of the University of Hawaii and I would go to this philosophy class and and I would would sit in my desk and I would listen to this burned out hippie and flip flops in a Hawaiian shirt every single day begin to tell me why there was no absolute truth and how everything that could be should be or can be or is or and and we would go through this litany of and we would study all these People from times gone by, all these philosophers. And, and as I was studying this week, I was reminiscing about even then I just knew this is nuts. This can't be right. And I was remembering that we, we studied a man named Immanuel Kant. He was a, an 18th century philosopher from Germany. And, I, I wrote some notes down for you because I really want you to, to just embrace the glory of the wisdom that I learned in my philosophy class about this man. He, he is famous for what's called the critique of judgment. And uh, let this just bless your soul. Uh, he says he's known for the idea of final science. In which all empirical knowledge could be synthesized into a full and complete casual explanation of all events possible to the world. Okay. He says that he, he has a lifelong dislike of religious formalism, but he also has a passion for the inquiry into ultimate reality based on an undeniable though muted Personal spirituality. Now if you... I've read that over and over about 17 times and I don't understand any of it. None of it. But I just want you to know that that's what's out there. That's what's going to happen to uh, to my daughter next year when she takes off to college. She's going to sit in a philosophy class and she's going to study things like that. And many of you have studied things like that. And And whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you certainly would, would wonder, could this be right? And in this philosophy class where this professor, you know, and, and I was forgetting some things about myself, see that I've always been argumentative. That's not something new that just developed in me. It's not a spiritual gift. I've always had that. And so I remember one day that the professor said that there was no absolute truth. And I raised my hand and he said, Mr. Carnes, and I said, are you absolutely sure about that? And that didn't go very well. But in this class, here's the problem. He doesn't believe there's any absolute truth. So what is he going to do come test time? See, I was thinking. I'm thinking, man. So we don't have any tests because there's no absolute truth. But he kept talking about this final exam. I couldn't wait for that final exam. And so the day comes for the final exam and I go into the class and I sit down and I'm waiting and then all of a sudden he passes out the test and here we go, we get this paper and it has a place and a line for you to put your name and it has the whole test is compiled of one question and here's the question, why? Question mark. That's it. And so everyone's sitting there, staring at their paper, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And then I start hearing pencils going and people are writing. And so then the rest of us are wondering, like, what are they writing? And so I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. And then it comes to me. I'm like, I got this. And I write, why not? And I turned it in. (laughs) And I want you to know I got an A in the class. And see, here's my point. My point is that not all questions are worth answering. Not all questions are, are, are of equal importance. But today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that asks the ultimate question. That on this one question hangs the determination, the factor that will that will, will, will show us, that will determine. Our eternity. You see, not all questions are equal. And there is one question that rises far and above all other questions. So as we sort of get back into Luke and we, we are sort of immersed back in where we've been learning and studying, I want you to remember that we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9 we're in the classroom of the master teacher and Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God and he spent the first seven chapters just, just breaking them in and, and making them aware of what the kingdom was going to be and so they, he, we, we saw his birth, we saw how he, was, he chose his disciples, we saw how he has healed the sick and how He has performed miracles and His power. But then in chapter 8 it, it sort of turned. It was like we, were, we, we came into the classroom and now it was going to be this, this time of explanation as to what's been going on. So in chapter 8 we started with the parable of the sower, which was an explanation of how the kingdom operates. Then we moved to illustration. And in illustration we saw Him calm the storm, heal a demon-possessed man, raise a little girl from the dead, heal a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Then we get to application. And in the application process in chapter 9, we see Jesus sending the disciples out two by two. He gives them power to perform miracles and to preach the gospel. And so He's applying all that they've learned to go out into the countryside and the villages and to share the good news. Then, last time we were together, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. And we saw Jesus make the astonishing statement when the disciples realized that all these people needed to be fed. Jesus looked at them and said, Will you give them something to eat? You see, He's teaching them application. But like any good teacher, like any course, like any, anything that we would learn or study, there comes a point in time where there's, a, there's an examination, there's a test... And so we come to the midterm, if you will, really the the center point because we're going to turn after this and then we're going to go for the next nine chapters and we're going to see more about the kingdom of God and then the last five chapters of Luke are all going to be about the Passion Week. This is the test. This is the pop quiz. This is the the midterm to see how, how have you been doing up until now? How has the last two and a half years of instruction benefited these disciples? What have they learned? So I want us to read together. Beginning in verse 18, Luke chapter 9. Let's begin reading. The Bible says, And it happened as Jesus was alone praying that His disciples joined Him and He asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say the one of one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Father, help us now. Help us now to receive this Word. God, speak to us. We, we humble ourselves before it and acknowledge that it is perfect and it's from You and it's given to us. And we need Your help to understand and to comprehend and to receive so give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you first to see the crowd's speculation. I want you to see the speculation of the crowd that starts in verse 18 where the Bible says as it happened, Jesus was alone praying. Now I'm not going to deal with this part. We're going to come back to this little section in, in three weeks from now. But the Bible goes on to say that His disciples joined Him and then Jesus asked them, saying... Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, the crowds are never short for some opinion about who Jesus is. We know that uh, from reading the other gospel accounts of this story that this is taking place in Caesarea Philippi. We know that Caesarea Philippi was not always called Caesarea Phil- Philippi, but one, at one time it was, it was the, the, a place named after the god Pan, the, the half man, half animal that plays a flute and all these little things swirl around him and, and, and there were temples built to all these false gods and they're surrounded by all these opinions of who God is and how things are going to work out and people worshiping at all sorts of strange temples and, and then Jesus comes along in the midst of this environment and He says, now who do the crowd say that I am? What, what is their what is their opinion of who I am? And this really is is not the question. This is just a setup question. This is like a preliminary question. We do this to each other all the time. This is like when someone calls you up and and says, "Hey, what are you doing this Saturday?" And you say, "Oh, nothing. What's up?" And they say, "Can you help me move?" See, it's a trick question. They don't ever call and say, "Hey, can you help me move?" They ask what you're doing first. So you might remember that you're always busy on Saturday until you know what they're saying. But Jesus is just setting up the question He really wants to get to. But really this first question is the question everyone's asking. We heard this in, back in chapter 8, and verse 25, where the disciples were in the boat and, the, and Jesus calmed the storm and they responded, who can this be? For He commands even the winds and the water and they obey Him. So there's the question. This question was in Luke chapter 9, verse 9, where Herod was wondering about all these things that he was hearing about and all these miracles that were being performed. And he said of Jesus, who is this whom I hear such things. So this is the question that's on the minds of all the people in the context that we're studying. But this is the question that's still being asked today. There's no shortage of speculation about who Jesus is. For example, just this month alone, you can bless yourself with such creative use of your spare time by watching wonderful television on the Discovery Channel. You can see a special about the lost tomb of Jesus that will be completely and utterly wrong. You can watch uh, another show called Who Was Jesus? Great, I want the Discovery Channel to answer that question for me. Or you can also see... Uh, The philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that scares me right there because we've already talked about philosophy, so there's no telling what that's about. But really, the more creative shows are the ones on the History Channel. They're, they're, they're really edifying. You can watch the History Channel this month and you can see a special called The Real Face of Jesus. I mean, what is that? That's just his face. It's the real face. What do you mean, the real face? So I took some time because the name just—I could not resist. I know I tell you don't ever watch these all the time, but I—I I didn't take my own advice because the History Channel has a special this month called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now that caught my attention because I'm familiar with the Gospel of Thomas and and all this nonsense going on, and so I thought, well, I just need to see this for uh, for a minute and just uh, you know make myself aware of what's going on and. Uh, basically, uh, this it chronicles the childhood of Jesus. And Jesus is portrayed as this troubled young man in his childhood. And there's a story where Jesus is, uh, has a dispute with one of his friends. And so, I guess his friend made him mad. I'm not really sure what happened. But Jesus throws him off the roof and he dies. So... Or or maybe he didn't. The kid just fell off the roof and then he dies. But anyway, uh, all the people in the town and all all the uh, adults, you know, they come and they're like, Now, Jesus, did you throw Johnny off the roof? And Jesus said, No, I didn't throw him off the roof. I didn't do it. Are you sure you didn't do it? Well, who did it? I don't know. And so the story goes that Jesus rose little Johnny from the dead and when he came alive, Jesus said, Did I throw you off the roof? And he said, No, you didn't throw me off the roof. And Jesus raised him from the dead just to prove that he didn't throw him off the roof. Now, really, folks. Just help me with this. Really? This is what we got? I mean, I know our country is completely... Off the rail. I knew that when I heard that there's a petition circulating that Sesame Street, they're going to try to force Sesame Street to let Bert and Ernie have a gay wedding. I'm not making that up. That's the culture. That's the speculation that's out there. But everywhere you turn, people have an opinion, especially when it comes to Jesus. And so, here's what the Bible says in verse 19. So they answered and said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets from old is risen again. And you, you think about now that, that these crowds that, that, that are proposing that maybe it's John the Baptist or Elijah or some other prophet, according to Matthew's account, that's probably Jeremiah, some other prophet that... Now, these people have, have seen far too much to speculate that Jesus is merely a man. So you see, no one is going to say, well, he's just a man because they've seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. So he must be more than a man. And so they're going to give him credit of being more than a man. So they're going to use things that are, that are you know, fit into their culture. See, the murder of John the Baptist was fresh on their mind. So they're thinking, well, maybe maybe it's John the Baptist. Maybe he rose from the dead. Or maybe it's Elijah. It's a Jewish culture. They know that the very last passage of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, the Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So maybe that's what's ringing through their mind. Or Jeremiah. They're all familiar with the ministry of Jeremiah. And so they're they not going to say that he's merely a man, but they're not nearly willing to admit that he's God. And so they must find some place in the middle. You see, the crowd is always okay... With proposing that Jesus is a forerunner or a pointer, if you will, to the one who's to come. The crowd's fine with that. The crowd is always okay saying that he was a great prophet or a gifted teacher or a man who spoke about peace. They're fine with that. They're fine with any opinion about God, but that he's God. You see, a teacher's fine. A prophet's fine. But God, no. And, and you think about who do the people in Harrison County think God is? What are the speculations about Jesus amongst the people that you work with? What do your extended family members think about Jesus? What do your neighbors think about Jesus? I wonder, you know, students who just started school, what do the kids that sit in the row next to them and beside them or their teachers think about Jesus? Everyone has an opinion about who Jesus is. You see, there's, there's always speculation in the crowd. But then again, there's the apostles' revelation. Look at verse 20. So Jesus says unto them, But who do you... And this is emphatic. Who do you say that I am? Meaning, who do you to the apostles? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. The... The Christos, the the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who is sent from God. You see, to say you're the Christ of God, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. A title that means He is the One. The One that all the Bible is speaking about. The Messiah, the One who will come and redeem mankind. This is a very specific title that can only be given to one person. And you see, all the Jewish culture has been waiting for this one person. But now that He's there before them in their presence, they reject Him and deny Him and they're waiting for another because He's not what they had hoped for. He's not what they had expected. He's not what they want. He's not doing things the way they want Him to do things. I wonder why. I wonder why the world around us rejects Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Could it be that maybe Jesus doesn't do things the way they want Him to do things? Maybe Jesus doesn't have the political views that they have. Maybe Jesus doesn't fix the economy the way they want it fixed. Maybe Jesus doesn't fit into their worldview. Maybe Jesus is a little too close-minded, too judgmental, too one way, the only way. So they don't like that. So they look for someone else. Nothing has changed. For thousands of years, it's been the same old story. Now, this answer that Peter gives is not just his personal answer, but it's given on behalf of the disciples. This is the answer, Lord. This is who we say that you are. And this is a twofold answer because, first of all, it's stating that the apostles are confirming the truth that Jesus is God. Not that He's a prophet, not that He's a pointer or forerunner, but that He is God incarnate in flesh on earth. But in doing so, they're also negating the answers of the crowd. In other words, to say that He is the Christ of God is to say that He is not John the Baptist, He is not Elijah, and He is not any other prophet. You see, to be the Christ of God means you can only be that and nothing else. So it's a two-fold answer. It's this is who we say that you are and everyone who says otherwise is wrong. It doesn't matter what the other answers are. It doesn't matter how creative they are. It doesn't matter how much credit you give Him or how eloquent your words are. They're wrong. And so the crowd, think about the crowd for a moment, who who gives these these choices. Think about how unified they are. In other words, you don't have three different groups in the crowd. You don't have the John the Baptist crowd. Well, they say Jesus uh, is John the Baptist, but they're very angry at the crowd over here because the crowd over here says that Elijah, it's Elijah really, that's who he is. And they don't like the John the Baptist crowd. Then there are some, you know, they're the tea party. They're over here and, and they say it's, it's, uh, Jeremiah. Notice that they're all together. In other words, the one who says it's John the Baptist is completely fine with the one who says it's Elijah. That's important. Because what do we have today in our culture? See, all the cults and all the liberals and all the... What do they preach? They preach the gospel of acceptance and unity. See, the crowd is unified in all their opinions. They don't care what your opinion is as long as it's not the one of the apostles. You see that? You see how it's always this, this message of, well, anything goes, everything works? The crowd is unified in their ignorance, if you will. Just pick a name, any name. Says anything. But don't say that He's the Christ. Don't say He's the Messiah, that He's the Chosen One. Don't say that. And the Bible is so utterly clear. It just is astonishing at the clarity to which the Bible addresses this issue. Nearly every page of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John declare with just such obvious truth over and over and over, That Jesus is the Messiah. John states in John chapter 20, the purpose for all this gospel is that it would be written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And over and over and over, it would seem as obvious as this is. It would seem that most people would receive Jesus as the Messiah. It, it, would, it would seem to me that the crowds would really be on the correct side after all that they've seen. It would seem to me really that our culture, after, after the gospel has endured through all these generations... And there are still people today willing to die for this truth. And yet the, the church presses on through through trial and through struggle. And people continue to come and worship. And all these, the, these people that you work with and that you live next door to. And they look at you and they see you up early every Sunday morning. And out you go, dressed all nice to go to church. And they're just astonished at that. It would seem to me that with all these indicators, they would say, You know, maybe there's something to this. But you see, they don't. Why? Why do the crowds reject the Messiah? All their life they've been waiting, waiting. And then He comes and He performs miracles to the likes of which have never been seen on earth before. They're in His presence. Isn't it strange that prior to the arrival of Jesus, that every time a prophet of God came and did great things, or even even a false prophet who had power, that everyone would clamor and, and, and want to anoint Him the Messiah. But when the real Messiah comes, they don't want Him. Why? Matthew gives us an indication in Matthew chapter 16 in his account of this same text. Matthew says this in verse 17. After the response is given, the Christ of God, Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjone, He's saying, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, there's your indication. There's the reason why the crowds reject Jesus. Because these men didn't come to the conclusion that He's the Christ, the Son of the living God, on their own. That the Spirit of God revealed that to them. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Bible says, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to Him, nor can He know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. There's a very hard passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus says in verse 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, and this is right after He has just blasted unrepentant cities. He says, woe and woe Bethsaida, because they have not repented and yielded to His power and His deity. And He says at that time He comes to them and He says right after that, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. You see, this Scripture is not saying that, that smart people can't go to heaven. It's saying that those who are puffed up in pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, those who think they know what's right, those who think they have enough skill, enough wisdom, enough understanding, enough ability to solve their own problems, they can't know. They can't know. Because the Spirit of God won't reveal it to them. Why? Because where did the classroom start in chapter 8? With the parable of the sower. And what did Jesus tell us about the parable of the sower? In Luke 8, verse 11, Jesus said that the seed is the Word of God. Remember, it's the Word of God. And He went on to say that those who are by the wayside, those hard-hearted people, those ones who they hear, and then the devil comes and takes the Word out of their heart, lest they should be saved. Remember? In other words, the teaching here is no matter how obvious the truth is, if your heart is hard, you can't receive it. It must be given to you by the Spirit of God. God doesn't give the Word to hard-hearted, arrogant people. Your heart has to be softened. You see, the discovery that Christ is the Messiah, it's not dependent on your IQ it doesn't matter about your education or your, your social standing. It's not about your gender or your race or your physical beauty. It's not about any attributes that you have. If you know it's only a result of the divine illumination due to the grace of God. That's the only way you can know that He is the Son of the living God. You can read theology books, you can go to seminary, you can write lectures, you can interview scholars, but there is no amount of effort that can result in the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ apart from God's gift to you and me. That's why the crowd ignores the obvious truth because their heart is hard and they cannot receive it. We need to hear that today, church. You need to understand why the world is the way it is, why we live in a culture the way we live. You need to understand as you begin to pray and, and, and seek God's face on behalf of the salvation of, of your lost family members and your co-workers and the people who live around you, you need to understand their heart is hard. Pray that God would soften their heart. Pray that God would give them ears to hear that sometimes we go into something and we think this is so obvious, how can you not get it? And there's no one home because their heart is hard. This is a revelation. This is a gift. You see, the implication is simple. The implication of this truth is that if you know this morning, if you know that Jesus is the Christ, it's because it's been revealed to you. And if it's been revealed to you, it wasn't because you deserved it. It was because in obedience to the Father's will and because Christ loved you, and chose you to be His son and His daughters. That He suffered and died. And completed the mission for which He was sent here to do. On our behalf that we might be saved. It's not because of us. Now I know that there's a, there's a part of us that wants to just come up against this truth. And say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that all these people who have come up with all these speculations and opinions about Jesus and and have seen all these things, they don't know because they can't know. They can't know because their heart is hard. Then that's just not fair. To which I respond, You're right. That's not fair. It's not fair that the Son of God left heaven, came down and died for sins He didn't commit. That's not fair. It's not fair that when you and I were rebels against the holiness of God, stealing His glory, doing everything we could to fill our bellies and mock Him and laugh at Him and blaspheme Him, it's not fair that He died a perfect death. That's not fair. My response to that is the last thing any of us want is what's fair. The last thing we want is what we deserve. Thank God it's not fair. It's not fair that anyone would know that He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not fair. You see, to say that it's not fair that those who would harden their heart against the Lord would not hear is really to reject the Gospel. You see, because the Gospel doesn't return void. The Gospel, when it enters into a heart... That heart is prepared to receive it. And it accomplishes its work. Because to, to say anything else would say that somehow you and I, we, we studied enough or we prayed enough or we were faithful enough or we gave enough or we did something. No, no, we didn't do anything. He did everything. And so He's telling them, listen, you don't know this because of flesh and blood. You know this simply because it's been revealed to you. So we see the crowd speculation and the apostles' revelation. And thirdly, I want you to see the Savior's declaration. Look at the declaration of the Savior in verse 21. And Jesus strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This really is its an astonishing statement. In other words, it would seem that the last thing Jesus would say in this moment when he's recognized as the Messiah is, don't tell anyone. But you see, at closer observation, you see the context in verse 22 is that there is a, a declaration of a plan that is set in place, there is something for Jesus to accomplish. And he must suffer. And Jesus understands that even with the knowledge that He is the Christ, even with Peter's correct answer, Peter doesn't get everything. You see, he still still doesn't understand the whole picture because as we go through Luke's Gospel, we're going to see time and time again Jesus is going to continue to tell them that He's going to die and that He's going to suffer. And they're going to struggle with that. And here's why. Because they don't understand how this can be good how you can be god in the flesh and suffer because what they're looking for is a savior and this doesn't seem like a saving plan you know a, a superhero with big guns and weapons and bombs and all sorts of things seems more like a saving plan but but a but a A Savior who comes to suffer. And and think about the life of Christ that His suffering is not restricted only to the events of the cross. If you just look in Luke's Gospel, you'll see in Luke chapter 4 that He was rejected in His own hometown. He suffered there. If you look in Luke chapter 7, you're going to see that He was dismissed as a glutton and a drunkard. He was rejected there. At the end of this very chapter, He's going to be described as one who has nowhere to lay His head. He suffered. See, His suffering was on this earth and then upon the cross was the ultimate suffering. And Jesus is coming to do the unthinkable. And what I want you to understand this morning is that the key to understanding why Jesus says no, not now is because the time is not right. And because the most important truth that these men need to understand is that what will happen must happen. And you see, for us this morning, what we need to understand from this text is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we need to take that and realize that what must happen, must happen. That Jesus must do those things that He says He must do. And that you and I should be very thankful that He has done the things that He says He must do that when the time is right, He is going to orchestrate a plan that is beyond our comprehension, that that which the goodness of this plan will, will, will last for an eternity. That the very basis of my life as a believer in Jesus Christ hangs upon that word must. And and we need to get a hold of that. He must suffer. According to Ephesians 5.22, He must suffer to accomplish His Father's perfect will. According to 1 John 4.10, He must suffer to die for our sin. According to Galatians 2.20, He must suffer to display His love for us. According to Isaiah 53.5, He must suffer to give us peace and to heal the wounds left behind by our sin. According to Galatians one four, he must suffer to deliver us from the grip of Satan. According to Hebrews ten fourteen, he must suffer to make us blameless before God. Romans chapter five verse ten says his suffering made us right and 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 made us right with God that we're no longer enemies, but now we are His friends, we're His sons, we're His daughters. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, the Bible declares that we were once orphans, but that He bought us and He adopted us through a spirit of adoption. In Hebrews 10.19, the Bible says that He transformed those of us who were once outsiders into family members in the inheritance of Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 1.18 says He broke the curse and the pain of our past and replaced it with a future purpose and a hope. The Bible is replete over and over and over that we need to thank God daily that He suffered. Because in His suffering, the glory of the Gospel came true for you and for me. Because of His suffering, today, we stand with the guarantee of His return to get us, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, that we have access into His joy and into His life, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Just think about the Word of God and that today, right now, there's an indestructible, invincible knowledge according to God's Word in Romans chapter 8 verse 39, that no power, no authority, no failure in our past, no pain in our present, no matter how deep the wound, regardless of how big the scar, nothing can ever in any way, shape or form separate us from the love of God because He suffered. If you take away the suffering, you've got nothing. All you have is a prophet. All you have is a teacher. But the suffering accomplished what no one else could accomplish. That's what makes Him, the Christ, the Messiah, is the suffering. And when you look upon that cross, you need to see, you need to see that that cross represents your freedom, it represents your life, it represents your peace, and it represents your eternity. And so it wasn't going to be something that, that, was, that had this much hanging on the balance. It wasn't going to be that Jesus was going to take this timing lightly, that the Father's plan was just kind of aloof about when this suffering would take place, but it was laid out before the foundation of the world exactly when it would occur. And so in this test, the disciples respond correctly. He is the Christ, the Messiah. But Jesus says the time has not yet come. But when it does, you need to understand that I must suffer. I must. Because everything good about the gospel hangs upon me suffering. You see, we we know from Luke's gospel that this crowd had seen Jesus do unbelievable miracles, they knew that he had power over demons and over death. They, many of these people were, were here and had already heard the stories of the feeding of the 5,000. But it wasn't enough. You see, it wasn't enough for them. All they could do was muster the faith in their own strength to believe that He was Elijah or John the Baptist. You see, in their human ability, that's all the faith that they could muster. I want you to understand this morning, you could sit in church every Sunday for the rest of your life. You could watch God do amazing things in the lives all around you. You can believe that He is real. You can believe that He has power. Maybe your parents are Christians. Maybe you've grown up in a, in a, in a Christian environment. Maybe your spouse is a Christian. Maybe everyone around you who knows you thinks that you are a Christian. But none of these things answer life's most important question. And that is, who do you say that Jesus is? The question today is for you personally and for me. Personally, who do you say Jesus is? Because to know Him as Lord, you must experience Him as Savior. You see, you can't know that honey is sweet unless you taste it. I mean, you can watch the Food Network and you can read cookbooks and magazines. You can even talk to people that you trust about how honey tastes and what's the texture and and describe the sweetness of honey. Is it like sugar sweet or is it some other kind of sweet? What is honey like? But you can't know it until you taste it. And Jesus... Jesus must be experienced as Savior. In other words, knowing about Him, believing things about Him will not save you. The Bible says to taste and see and know that I am God. Experience God as Savior. Know Him as Lord. It's not about the popular speculations it's about the, the personal, the personal revelation. Are you here this morning? Is the Lord drawing you unto Him? Is there this, is there this war that's raging inside of you that, that every Sunday when we get to this part of the service, you begin to feel a little uneasy? I know that feeling. I know it. I know that feeling of thinking, how can I go up there and, and, and talk to a stranger and, and stand before people, and all these things are going through your head, and, and, you just, and you're thinking of all the ways to just put it aside. I just, I want you to know this morning that you see you can't know that He's the Christ apart from revelation. From him. And so if he's drawing you unto himself this morning, then how how can you say no to one that you exalt as Lord? So one of those two things just won't go together. So, what is it going to be this morning? is it going to be that we as a people of God would would recognize that he's the Christ and all that he's done in our life through his suffering that everything that we have joy in today is because of his suffering and exalt him and thank him and worship him for what he's done and if you don't know him if you don't know him let this be the day that you respond that you personally experience Jesus Christ the savior And Lord today. Because He suffered and died to make that possible. And I know there's crowds speculating all around you and there always have been and there always will be. But they're wrong. And that there's one question above all other questions. And that is, who do you today say that Jesus is? Will you stand and bow your head and close your eyes?